somebody said, you need to think of it as a train set. I'm like, okay, explain that. So we can't really break a train set. You just change it and then you can put it back together again. Um, and I went away with that. It's a train set. And all of a sudden I, I thought it's also not just a train set. It's my train set. Um, and so I, if I don't play with it, and so for a long time, it had been my, my dad's train set. So I had been running his train set. And all of a sudden I decided I was going to run my train set. And we sold the paper business, then we sold the textile business, then we sold the paper business, all probably a bit too late. Uh, we went from having a significant overdraft to having significant cash in the bank. This is the Leeds Business Podcast, and I'm your host, Phil Fraser. I'm a business sounding board. Think somewhere between a business coach and a business mentor. If you're a business owner feeling lonely at the top, drop me an email. I can help mentor you. In this week's episode, we speak to Jamie Bentley, CEO of Stevenson Personal Care. Jamie tells us all about how it feels to take over as fifth generation in a family firm. All about selling in the States, looking, as he puts it, like a cross between Tim Nice-McDim and Hugh Grant. The feeling when landing your first million dollar deal and how a brilliant train set analogy sparked his eureka moment. Plus, Jamie tells us all about a great opportunity you can get MBA students to work on your new business idea. To make sure you never miss out on every episode of the Leeds Business Podcast, sign up to our priority list at www.leedsbusinesspodcast.com. Everyone that signs up gets a free gift to help their business. So, Let's get into what is a really wide-ranging interview. My guest today is CEO of Stevenson's Personal Care, Jamie Bentley. Good morning, Jamie. Phil, good morning. Nice to meet you. Now, you are, am I right, your fifth generation in the business. Is that correct? Yep, I'm fifth generation. It was started by my great-great-great-great-grandfather in the 1850s. Okay, so, so let's give us, give us, give us all a, a history lesson on Stevenson's then. How did it all start? Well, in really basic terms, we made soap to wash wool from 1856 to 1960 between Leeds and Liverpool. Um, and we supplied all the textile mills and the wool processing people. Then in 19, the 1960s, that all moved overseas and my dad joined the business. He ended up actually selling it to a bigger business called Stevenson Group and was given the challenge of think of something which is a bit like washing grease and dirt off wool. And his idea was washing ink off newspaper in paper recycling. If you imagine a wool fiber and a paper fiber, they've both got bits on them. And so you'll remember newspapers used to make your fingers gray um, and our recycling chemistry stopped that happening. And so he transformed the business. That was the big moment. And then we've been in various businesses since then, all around using the technology of soap making that came from the wool trade in the north of England. So if you're if you're sort of washing ink off newsprint. You must be sort of one of the first green companies ever. I think we were. And actually, we've suffered a bit from that over the sort of past 10 years when sustainability has become this thing. It is part of what we do. I can't remember the number right now, but it's something like 300 million trees that we um, saved from being cut down. But at the time we did it, it was to wash ink off old paper because they needed to recycle it. Right. Okay. So you were there. You were there. You can claim to be there before the curve. That's very cool. It's very cool. So, so give us, give us, um, give us your background. Were you? I, I always get fascinated by this with with family companies as to whether 
you know, you're groomed to always eventually go into the company or whether you choose to, how, how what's your story? Quite the opposite. Um, I was never pushed towards it. I was never academic at school. Um, <clears throat> I was described as easy, either as lazy or stupid at school. And then recall going for a, an IQ test and they said, well, we can only conclude that he's actually lazy. <laughs> Didn't do well at school. The, the business was based in Bradford. The board were all men in gray suits and um, it was pretty old and industrial and it, it wasn't for me. And I, I went to, I didn't do well at school. I went to art school. I went then and did um, an HND in business and financial management. And after that left and worked for a travel company and worked as a mountain guide in the Alps and ended up running a small hotel in Turkey. And when you have a job like that, everybody says, what are you going to do when you get a proper job? And you're the one sat there thinking, I've got a proper job. You're the one paying to be here. Um, and my stock answer was, I'm going to work in the chemicals industry. And it was just to really end the conversation. And when I came home from doing all that, there was a job in the newspaper advertised for marketing assistant for a company called Ellis and Everard, which was a chemical business. Um, and I joined and I became, I think the title was marketing assistant, but it was really bag carrier um, and team maker to a guy called Ray Wilkinson. And I followed him around the country for a year using his laptop because Excel had only just been invented and he couldn't really work it. And I learned loads from him um, and then went on to their management development program. And that business became Univar. And all of a sudden I was in the chemical industry. Okay. Okay. So, so what, what do you think you learned from following Ray around for a year? What were the key things you picked up from him? Probably learning how to watch a mentor. <clears throat> um, and it's not so much about what I learned from him. It was what I learned about the whole industry and his style with people. Um, yeah, we, it was all around the, the sort of relationship building because at the time, um, ICI, which is now mostly Ineos, but there was this giant company and we were distributors for them. So he had to have relationships and I watched him build those relationships, maintain them. And I learned some of the commerciality around that. Um, <clears throat> and then I watched other people in the business who were, some were fantastic, some weren't. And uh, one of my key sort of thing learnings is to watch, uh, you know, mouth shut, eyes open and ears open and watch and learn. And that, that was a great experience for me. And he, he left a big impact on me. And he was very old school. Um, and it was in the transition from old school to new school. Okay, so uh, you moved up from, from bag carrier. What sort of things did you get involved in with your, your, your sort of next role? I ended up being the guy running the commercials of a distribution center in Suffolk. I would have been in my early 20s and I had a lot of customers, a Vectra, a Carphone, uh, was doing about 50,000 miles a year, selling from two businesses from ICI Paints, which was obviously very high tech and they wanted um, combined buying and so on and so forth, to um, abattoirs, chicken farms, because we had Norfolk was my patch, so sold a lot of bleach. Um, there was a lot of selling involved, but it was also, we had a very small team. There were seven or eight of us, we had a driver, a distribution person, uh, an accounts person. And so I had to really interact with a small team and it was really like running a tiny little chemical distribution business. And I learned a lot from it, but most of what I learned was around selling, um, which is what I loved. That sounds like proper old school sales rep stuff. 
get in the car, hang your jacket up in the back and, and, and drive around and knock on doors almost? Not almost, it was. Um, you tried to make as many appointments as you can, but you wanted to have as many customers you could just go and see. And I found that very difficult to do. And I worked out that as a rep, you could do eight calls a day, maybe. But the trucks were doing 30 deliveries a day. So I abandoned my Vectra and um, sat in the passenger seat of one of the wagons. And I did all the selling from there. So I didn't use my company car. I just stayed with the drivers. And um, you'd go with an Arctic to a business. You'd work out whether the deal was good. You'd meet the buyer. And then the, the buyers weren't so corporate. So I could do 30 calls a day when all my colleagues were doing eight calls a day. And that worked. Fantastic. I love that. I love that. So th this is my driver. He happens, he happens to be driving an Arctic lorry at the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the drivers, they know more about the customers than you'll ever know because they talk to the guys on the loading dock, the engineers. Um, and that's where you get the information and it's where you build the loyalty too. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's great. You, re you know, you're really getting the info from, you know, from the horse's mouth there, aren't you? Yeah. And if you've got competition, they're the first people to tell you. Yeah. 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 So, so how long were you in that role and, and where did that lead you to? Uh, that, I was in that role for about three years. I then got married um, and I was in inverted commas headhunted by a larger chemical distribution business, but I was pretty clear all they wanted was my customer list, um, but I wasn't paid a lot and they were going to pay me quite a lot more. So I came up to Yorkshire to talk to my dad about it and uh, in his house they have a sort of drawing room that only gets used at Christmas time um, or bollockings, um, as, as I remember as a child. And so I'm talking to my dad about this and he says, well, I think we should go in the drawing room. Oh, Christ, here we go. What's this all about? And he said, look, if you ever want to join our business, now is the moment because, um, and this is a longer story, but the, the sectors we were in were all maturing and we needed to go into the personal care industry. And he had the idea um, and it was his idea that if we can wash wool, we can wash paper, can't be that different to washing people and washing hair. Um, and he said, if you want to join, you can join as the salesperson into the personal care industry. We've got no customers, no products, no idea what we're doing, but, um, if you want to join, that's it. And I said, yes. And that was when I joined and, um, well, with hindsight, what a fantastic decision. It didn't feel like it quite at the time a few times, but it was a good decision. Right. Okay. So in effect, he's, he's, he's given you a blank piece of paper, in effect, a startup. And I said, right, get on with it. Yes. There was um, one key person in that. So the board was still made up of all the people that ran the industrial divisions. And we had paper, textiles, uh, rubber and silicones at the time. So that was the board. They were all called managing director of each division. The reality is they were all salesmen. And then my dad, who was chairman, the reality is he's a salesman and the poor finance director trying to manage them all. Um, and I joined as sales rep for the personal care products. And there was a guy called John Story, who's still in the business now, who joined a few months earlier as factory manager. Um, and John had turned up with a sleeping bag on his first day at work and stayed in his office for 10 days um, and then went back to my dad with a report on what he thought of the factory. And so John was my ally. John was a very capable, is a very capable um, chemist 
and a great doer. And I, we matched well. We did a double act for many, many years. And so he, in the scheme of mentors, he was a really key person for us and for me. So just talk us through the emotion, the, the thought process of of going to work for the family firm, what what was going through your mind when when you were when you were when you were in the drawing room waiting for your bollocking? Not a lot. Um, it just seemed a natural thing to do. It, it seemed like there was a real opportunity here for me to do something that wasn't, you know, my godfather was the managing director of the textile business. I'd known him all my life. The head of HR, I'd known her all of my life, and this was a new thing I could do. Um, so that was exciting. I didn't really rationalize all the, the issues that would come up. Um, and I, I don't regret it for a moment. I spent probably the first five years thinking about just being the salesman for personal care products. And we built some products and John developed some products. So I was very much a sales rep um, within the family business. I was nowhere near running it. I was nowhere near the board. Um, and then when that transition happened, there was a period of me being nominally in charge. Uh, John and I were made ultimately joint managing director. My dad was still chairman. So we carried on doing what we were doing for another seven or eight years. And then all of a sudden I had a eureka moment and um, realized this was mine to deal with. And I think that if I'd made that decision or had that train of thought 10 years earlier, we'd be where we are now 10 years earlier. Okay, before you tell us all about your Eureka moment, just talk us through how you developed the, the personal care offering. Because like you said, there was, you know, there was nothing there. How did, you, how did you approach that? Well, if you imagine what we sell is the raw material. We don't sell any finished products. So what we sell is on truckloads in one-ton bags. But if you think of it, instead of as soap as a candle, we would sell you the wax. So if you want to make a bar of soap, you have to buy soap base. If you want to make a candle, you buy wax. So this originally came out of a conversation when Anita Roddick had the body shop in that she was buying shea butter from Ghana to help a, a community of women in Ghana. And as I understand it, if you're Ghanaian and you're a woman, you get sent out to collect shea nuts. And if you're a man, you sit at home and count shea nuts um, and collecting them is a lot harder. So Anita Roddick wanted to support this. But when she got the shea butter back into the UK, it was full, it was in hessian sacks. It was full of dirt. She couldn't use it. So all she was doing in the end was putting 1% in a lip balm. So the consumer wasn't getting the product they really wanted. The community wasn't really getting the sustained demand. And so we said, well, why don't we buy all the shea butter, stick it in a big tank, turn it into soap, filter it, and hey-ho, your customer gets 20% shea butter. So that was one of the first examples um and again you know right up there on the sustainability really early early doors on the whole thing but it was it was a business opportunity it wasn't about that um and then other products we developed there was at the time a, a large company called unikema who made these sorts of products but they were they liked dealing with big businesses um so they were quite arrogant towards the smaller businesses but we developed some products that were similar to theirs and went out and sold them um and I have a, a key memory of walking down Avenue of the Americas in Manhattan. Uh, I'm wearing a Marks and Spencer's pinstripe suit, a Marks and Spencer's polka dot tie, Austin Reed brogues, and I've got an Argos briefcase full of soap. 
and there's these three giant skyscrapers. And I remember standing there thinking, what on earth are you doing? How did you end up here selling to these people or just selling soap? What, what kind of career plan was that? And I went into this building that belonged to Avon, went up to the 35th floor, whatever, in the big lift, came out. And there was a cliche, what now would be a normal office, but open plan, full of young people, full of beautiful people, full of bright people. And I presented to them the products that we had. And then I worked out that dressing up as a cross between Tim Nice, but Dim and Hugh Grant and wandering around America kind of worked. Um, and so for a while, John and I did that. And um, we built the business to several million pounds in a fairly short space of time through really just a lot of travel, a lot of graft and a lot of his skill, but his skill, my skill was the selling, his skill was the delivering on the promises. And we'd regularly be in meetings and I'd promise the earth. And in the taxi away from the meeting, I'd turn to John and go, can we do that? And he'd go, yeah, we can do that. Um, and so that, that was really the beginning of it. And as that transitioned, and I remember clearly getting a, a, our first million dollar order, um, and I'd got a million dollar order from a company in Los Angeles that was at 40% gross margin. The other businesses were getting $100,000 orders from a paper mill in Wuhan at 20% margin. So all of a sudden on the board, I had um, a, a place. But the guys who were working their nuts off in pretty tough countries, in big factories, they didn't like it that much or they they sort of resented it they were quite steeped in the tradition and i was the a i was the new kid i was the you know son of the boss my customers were in new york los angeles hong kong theirs were in wuhan hamburg and you know mongolia for a lot of the textile business um so that was an interesting transition right right just a couple of things you said there uh, it it's interesting actually and they saw this will if you're listening months and months ahead, um, it timestamps it slightly. Body Shop's just gone into administration this week. I mean, you, you mentioned mentioned Body Shop. But interestingly, I just want to talk about the, the, the million pound sales order. How did that feel? It was amazing. It was from a company called Primal Elements. And we got that order 22 years ago. And they are still a big, big customer. And I'm very close with the family that run it. I've spent two years courting them and their view was why on earth would I buy these products from the UK? I'm in America. Um, it felt amazing. The only problem was it was in the days when Virgin would organize a, a car to pick you up and take you to the plane. Um, and so we'd organized this car to pick us up, take us to the plane. We'd organized it to go from the customer. So we're in this boardroom, we get this massive order. And as soon as we got the order, my, you know, I'm nudging John like, let's get out of here. We've got the order. We don't want anything else bringing up. We don't want any other aggro. Get out of here. And I look out of reception and they've sent this giant stretched limousine. I mean, it was enormous. And I'm like, God, the optics of that are terrible. Absolutely terrible. Um, but they became great friends. And we, you know, we offered very, very simple customer service, which was if you have a problem, we come and see you. And I remember, oh, dozens of times where we would get a phone call on a Thursday night, the soap's not setting, the soap's discolored because of, and this, these products were new, the soap's discoloring with a certain fragrance. 
And I'd ring John on the way home from work and say, I'll see you at Heathrow 5.30 tomorrow morning. Uh, we're going to see Primal. And when, when you're growing a new business, boy, do you protect those big customers in the early days. And you protect the big customers, you protect all the customers all the time. But when it's new business and you're trying to grow it, you do whatever needs to be done to keep it. So was, was this point, you know, the million dollar order, the 40% gross margin, is that the Eureka moment? No, that was the moment when I think I realized that I now had credibility amongst the rest of the board. The Eureka moment probably came several years later when I was, uh, John and I were joint managing director. My dad was still chairman. Uh, and there was a transition happening that where I was essentially becoming CEO and John was becoming managing director. John was dealing with stuff back at base and I was more out and about. Um, and the guys running the other industrial businesses were general managers. They weren't managing directors, but they were still salesmen. And I joined a business mentoring organization called YPO, which is essentially once a month, you sit down with eight like-minded people who run great businesses and you explain your business. And I went to a meeting and I explained my business, which was, I was extremely proud of. I was, you know, lived in Nairsborough in Nairsborough. I was doing pretty well. I was getting paid well. I ran this group of businesses. I didn't really make any money. You know, some years it made, it made a lot of money in the paper industry in the early days, but the, the markets we're in had matured and we had lots of competition. And the, the brain power in the business was fundamentally around sales. So the strategy was generally sell more, um, which was also my strategy. I'm fundamentally a salesperson. Uh, so I presented this business to my mentoring group and I was very proud. I made it sound bigger than it was. It was all this group, this and group that. Uh, five different P&Ls and so on. And they said, that is the most complicated loss-making business I've ever seen. And I'm like, what do you mean? It's taste. There's loads of things. We're in all sorts of things. And, um, and so we have this discussion and they were pretty brutal. And somebody said, you need to think of it as a train set. I'm like, okay, I explain that. So we can't really break a train set. You just change it. And then you can put it back together again. Um, and I went away with that, it's a train set. And all of a sudden I, I thought it's also not just a train set, it's my train set. Um, and so I, if I don't play with it, and so for a long time it had been my, my dad's train set. So I had been running his train set. And all of a sudden I decided I was gonna run my train set. And we sold the paper business, then we sold the textile business, then we sold the paper business, all probably a bit too late. Uh, we went from having a significant overdraft to having significant cash in the bank. Um, and I think from that moment of selling those businesses, we, we lost 60% of our production overnight. Um, and from that moment on, we've grown and grown and we've focused and we've focused and we are now purely a personal care business. And that was the Eureka moment. Think of the business as a train set. Don't be frightened to change things. Um, bring in a lot more commercial and financial skill, um, engineering skill, invest in people, invest in culture. I didn't want to work in a top-down sort of environment. 
not because I don't think it's any good. I just think it's because I'm not any good at running one. Um, so I made a conscious effort to surround myself with great people and, um, and learn how to manage people who are better than you. I think that was a key thing. Let me just stop you there, Jamie, because I wonder what there's loads of stuff you've covered there that I really want to unpack. Um, I absolutely love the train set analogy. Absolutely fantastic. Fantastic. But before I do, um, I need to talk to everybody about the Leeds Business Podcast Fair Deal. The Leeds Business Podcast Fair Deal has two sides to it. My side to it is every week I bring you inspirational, motivational and, and fascinating business leaders like Jamie, totally free of charge. Uh, you, the listener or the watcher, um, have two parts to your side of the deal. Part number one, I want you to recommend this podcast to one other person you believe will get a benefit from it. Part number two, I want you to write a review either on the Apple Podcasts app at podchaser.com or give us a thumbs up on Spotify. Or if you're watching on YouTube, give us a wave, Jamie, to everybody who's watching on YouTube. There you go. If you're listening, Jamie's waving. If you're watching, you saw him wave. If you're on YouTube, give this episode a thumbs up and maybe even add a comment. So that's the Leeds Business Podcast fair deal. Sound like a fair deal, Jamie? It sounds like a very fair deal. Okay, so let's go back to where we were. So you just sort of you just threw in, oh, we sold this part of the business, we sold this part of the business, carry on. So just talk us through just for those who haven't sold a business, and I'm actually going through the process now with an investment I've got, just talk us through the process of, of selling, particularly selling um parts of a business rather than the whole business. That must be quite complicated. How did that process go? Selling part of a business can be less complicated than selling all of it because you aren't selling a corporate entity and you don't have the, the baggage around that from due diligence. So you're really selling a revenue stream, some IP or some know-how to somebody else who can take advantage of it. Um, we sold the first business, the paper industry, without getting external um, advisors and we probably didn't sell that as well as we could have done. The second business we sold was the rubber business and we used a, a lease based firm called Sentio as corporate finance advisors and they were absolutely first class. And I think what you get out of having decent corporate finance advisors is you know how to sell the widget that you make and you know how to make the widget that you make. You don't know how to sell a business um, and you can't find the right buyers. You, you think you think you know exactly who the buyers are. We sold our rubber business to a huge American private equity setup, and we were heavily exposed to one customer in that business. We had 60% of our business was with Michelin tire manufacturers globally, and we thought that would frighten people off. Uh, the reality was this American organization wanted a strategic relationship with Michelin. So in the end, we got uh, twice what I would have been delighted with for that business. And my learning from it is you need proper trusted finance advice and the same with the corporate finance and the lawyers. Um, and you can't, you can't beat that trust and that groundedness. You know, often people are tempted to go with the, the big firms and the big names, but when the, when the deal gets to a crunch point, you want to ring the person who's got your best interest at heart and say, I don't know what I do, what I should do, 
talk me through it. Uh, and that was uh, was massive in that circumstance. And then when we sold the textile business, we sold it to a Belgian guy who hated lawyers, hated accountants. Uh, and he said this, and he was extremely vocal. I actually, in the first meeting I had with him, um, I left the meeting and refused to go for dinner with him because he was just, I thought he was wasting our time. And then he rang me and I was on holiday and he made an offer and said, come to the office, we'll do the deal. Don't bring any lawyers or accountants. And I said, we can't, like this deal, you know, it's a multi-million pound deal. I need lawyers and accountants. And um, they were negotiating over a ratchet if the business performed a certain way. And you could see him getting agitated. And I said, okay, forget this. You and I shake hands. If it does this, I get that. If it does that, I get that. And if it does that, I get that. And he stood up and he shook my hand and he turned to the lawyers and the accountants and was banging on, he's an industrialist. This is how it is done. It was amazing. And to be fair to the guy, there was no contract. He, he paid. Um, so it was a big learning experience. And I think, you know, you learn, I learned more about the train set. You just learn from these people. And then that sort of led on to thinking more strategically about adding value into the business. So we worked on creating proper IP rather than know-how. Um, and I think strategy, it's as much about what you don't do as it is about what you do do. Um, as a young sales guy, everybody that rang with an opportunity for some sort of soap, whatever it was, the answer was yes. So internally in the business, people were struggling to keep up with it. And I was probably highly irritating going out, getting these opportunities. And I'm not a good finisher. You know, I'm a good ideas man. I'm a good salesman. I'm probably a half decent leader in terms of energizing people. But finishing it, I'm dreadful. And so when we learned to say, no, we're not doing all those things. We shut down those businesses. We spun one idea out that we had, that we had IP on, which was a, um, a product to make carbon dioxide stay in fizzy drinks and make it stay in the fizzy drinks longer. Um, so the shelf life is extended. The taste is better. If you're using non-sugar sweeteners, it doesn't negatively affect the taste or the carbonation. And we spun that out and put it on our own business. And uh, to get the business plan for that, we gave them everything we'd failed to do within the Stevenson business, uh, gave to five MBA students at Manchester Business School and said, there is a concept and a product. What would you do with it? And they presented a business plan as part of their MBA. They had three months work on it. And I hired on the spot three out of the five students. And um, for a couple of years, they ran the business. And now it's a profitable business. We're in lots of big global brands and then that's a totally separate entity but it was the idea came from mba students who cost us i think three months cost us fifteen thousand quid to have five geniuses who spoke nine languages between them working on it which otherwise it would have been our team who had shown for the last eight years they couldn't do it i absolutely love that idea where did where did that idea come from to actually take it take a concept to the mba students um, it came from various people that I met within the YPO organization. Uh, the Manchester Business School run various MBA courses and they need business projects every year. Um, and they've got to be, they have different ones, but the ones we were on, it has to be an international business issue. Like how do I expand the market for, 
know, widgets across Southeast Asia. And you, I think you pay a certain amount to give them the project. And then you pay a certain amount of expenses for them, but you go and pitch the idea to them. It's like Dragon's Den in reverse. So they, you've got to convince them you're good to work with. And you as the employer or the, the pro project sponsor have to um, put some time in and show them what the project is. But we've done five and three have been pretty much transformational to the business and two, they didn't land, but that's fine. Um, and I think also you, it's part of this mentor, look at people, listen thing. You don't know what you don't know you get. You know, these are bright people, very ambitious people from different backgrounds and different nationalities and different cultures. Uh, and you, it brings you a different perspective. We've got between 100 and 120 employees, half of them roughly in the factory, half of them in the office, half of the ones in the office probably work on stuff like, you know, accounts, engineering. Uh, so their influence on strategy is minimal. So you need people from the outside to come and help you, but you don't need a lot of consultants. Um, you're better off having bright young people who have a fresh set of eyes, I think. I love that. Great. Great. And you, you, you add, and that ties back into what you were saying about investing in people. And, and as you said, the difficulty in managing people who are smarter slash better than you. How do you, how do you cope with that? All of these things, you know, you meet people who are great leaders, great managing directors, great FDs. They weren't when they started, they just learned how to do it. Um, and I think, again, you learn from watching other people and you try very hard not to answer a question that you ask of your team. If you say, what do we do about this? You've got to listen to the answer. Um, and it's very easy in a, in a family business to um, think you know everything because you've been in it for a long time and your family's been in it a long time. And a lot of people look to you for the answer um and i think it's giving them the space to do it giving them the room to fail um and not fearing failure you know fail fast let, great idea let's try it and that's the beauty of a private business is you know however however big it is you've still got a board that can actually make a decision like right now and decisions need making right now um, and you implement them. And if they're not working, you change them. Um, and then you realize who the really good people are. They respect you for giving them space to do what they do best. Uh, and, th and then it works. Great. That's, that's absolutely right. And, and you know, one, one of the key things, and I had to do this in my business, was, was that when I brought a number two in, you've got to give them the space to fail. You've got to just grit your teeth and, and say, no, 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 don't do that. You've just got to go, oh, let, you, let you fail, let you learn. And then we'll go again. Yeah, I, you know, I've just bought in, uh, I promoted somebody that's worked for me for 25 years. He's been on this whole journey. Um, he is now managing director. I've hired an external chairman. She's been um, MD of similar companies. And I am trying very hard to sort of step back into a, a shareholder role because I've done 25 years of this and I know it needs fresh eyes. It needs new drive. And I, I love it. I mean, I love it to bits. I, I haven't built it, but I feel like I've been part of building it with everybody else. And I want it to continue. So my big challenge now is learn how to be a shareholder of what I hope is a family investment. And I can incentivize and motivate the senior team. And, you know, if I can do that, it can 
go on without me because I will become stale in the not too distant future. I just know that people do. Yeah, very good point. Very good point. Now, every week on the Leeds Business Podcast, we ask our guests to give us a how-to. So, Jamie, over to you. Tell us what your how-to is, and then tell us what we should know, tell us what we should learn. Bear in mind, I have absolutely no idea how to ask a question on how one should how you should do something. All I can talk from is my own um, experience, and my experience is around joining a family business and working for my dad. Um, I think the biggest thing is learning that if you are in a position where you are taking over a family business, you have to respect your predecessor enormously and they know what they're doing. They've built the business. You've got to ask them for help. And if you're lucky as I was, that not only creates a great business, but it creates an amazing experience to work, you know, together in my case, me and my dad, we went all over the world together uh, and I'd learned from him and, and he gave me, and I think this is important to the dads or the mums who are in the leadership roles. He gave me the space to fail and the space to change things and the space to try things. Uh, the mistake I made was taking too much time to work out. This is my train set. Um, so if I was taking over and you're not taking over, you're just joining a family business. You're not taking it over. You only take it over when you've earned the stripes. But have the conversation about how that transition might work in the future and don't push it. Don't expect somebody to give you all the shares early because you're working really hard. Um, and think of it as a train set and really work together and be open about your vulnerabilities as the next generation. And hopefully the previous generation can then be open about their vulnerabilities. You know, it's their life work and you might be about to screw it up. Um, and, and then the train set analogy, I think, is very useful. Great stuff. It's a great stuff. So um, a great how to, though, brief how to as to, you know, if you're taking over. And I suppose if you're taking over a business you've acquired as well, some of, the, some of that's, that's relevant as well. You know, if, you, if you, you, know, you buy a business or you bolt a business on, all those, all those, um, those learnings are, are relevant to that as well. I think if you're buying a business or you're bolting on a business, it's to get into the detail, uh, understand the shop floor level of it, the, the people that do the doing. Um, and I admire, you know, I have a friend who is a chief exec of a big public company and turned up in the corporate headquarters to take his role as chief exec and immediately got driven to one of the retail outlets and spent a couple of weeks in a retail outlet before he even bothered to talk to his senior team. And I thought that was fascinating. You know, just if you're buying it, you've got to understand it. And I think if you're buying it, and you want to understand it, and you want to understand the culture and influence the culture, the culture can really be influenced much better up than, than down. Once it's done upwards, you can, you can push culture down, but you've got to build it from the bottom up. Yeah. Great stuff. Great stuff. Now, we also ask our guests to give us a shout out for another Leeds Mrs. But before you do your shout out, Jamie, I've got a few shout outs of my own. Now, last week I attended um, a networking event and we gave away a load of Leeds Business Podcast biscuits produced by the girls at the Biscuitry. Um, if you want to find out about them, they're on episode five. Um, as part of me giving out biscuits, I asked people to take selfies and stick them on LinkedIn. 
um, in exchange for a shout out on the podcast. So I got so many, I'm going to have to do half of them today and half of them next week. So the following shout outs to uh, Mike Hall, MJH Art Studio. Mike produces bespoke corporate art for your HQ. Do you need some new, new uh, corporate art for your HQ, Jamie? Give Mike a shout. No, but I'll, I'll keep Mike's name. Um, Sally Benson of Limelight PR. Uh, her aim is to create happy workplace, um, a happy workplace attitude. Uh, Rebecca Dalzell, um, also in the HR side, she's uh, my internal recruiter. They do recruitment through subscription. So quite a new business model on that one. Uh, Martha Phillips, Source Marketing Communications. They, they produce performance-led marketing comms. And Katrina Lewis, Katrina Lewis Interiors, bespoke luxury interiors. There'll be links to all of them in the show notes below. Thank you to all of you for taking selfies of my Leeds Business Podcast biscuits. And I'll hand over to you, Jamie, for your shout out. So my, my shout out isn't uh, to a business, it's to an organization called the Hunslet Club, which I'm on the board of. And it was established in uh, 1940 in South Leeds. And it's basically a youth club uh, at its very simple level. But it has 2,500 members and it's had 67,000 visits this year. And these are kids who get the opportunity to do sports, welding, cooking, get get mentoring, get social engagement. And the the sort of, we're trying to work with Leeds Council to build this place into something that's really fantastic for the future. Um, and the work they do is phenomenal. And so in hopefully the next year or so, we will get some funding from the council, but that will need to be match funded by Leeds businesses. Um, and I will be very happy to take anybody there and we will need to get money to build some amazing facilities for kids in Leeds. And um, the people that run that and the kids that go are just phenomenal. So it's an enormous asset to the city. Brilliant. Great stuff. There will be a link uh, in the show notes below, as well as links to Jamie. So if you want to contact Jamie about that and give him some support, that's brilliant. Jamie Bentley, it has been an absolute fascinating three quarters of an hour. What a brilliant business story and some fantastic learnings. And I'm now going to go and play with my train set. Thanks ever so much. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found it interesting, inspiring, and of use. To make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes, please subscribe to the show. Go on. Do it now. Do it now before you go off and do something else. Thank you. Much appreciated. Oh, and don't forget our fair deal. See you next week.